Guys, consider this your personal invitation. I would love for you to come to men's retreat. Brian Fought is a guy that I've known for 20 years, and uh, he's a. You're going to be encouraged, and you're going to be blessed. If you're going, oh, two hundred dollars, uh, that's a little steep. Let us know. We do have some scholarships available and some partial scholarships available, and we want to make sure that every guy who can attend, will attend. Uh, ladies, feel free to motivate your husband and men in the house to uh, sign up as you do so. All right, well, let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for this day. And as we come together, we're going to look at your word, and we ask that you would transform us, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart to understand, that, Lord, as we look at your word, help us to see you in your word. Lord, we recognize that sometimes we have cultural lenses, perspectives that uh, we prefer as opposed to literally what your word has to say. So we ask that you would um, transform us today for your good glory. It's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. 2006, a movie came out called Talladega Nights. I in no way, shape, or form am endorsing Talladega Nights. That is not what is happening right now. However, it has been brought to my attention many times throughout the years, and because of the way it's been brought to, or the reason it's been brought to my attention, I too want to share with you. There is a scene where the protagonist, uh, uh, Ricky Bobby, played by Will Ferrell, begins to pray. And perhaps you're familiar, as he begins to pray, he's praying to baby Jesus. Well, this prayer becomes a discussion at the table, and he makes this comment of, I pray to baby Jesus because that's the Jesus I like. If you want to pray to the older Jesus with a beard, when you pray, you can pray to him. And then his friend Cal speaks up and he says, I like to party. So I like my Jesus to party. And I've thought about that through the years. The reality is what he sees in Jesus or wants to see in Jesus is very narrow. Really what he's doing is he's trying to make Jesus in his image instead of being transformed into the image of God. And we do it all the time. And I would say that this perspective, though it's done in comedy in that movie, we do this all the time when we take a narrow sliver of Jesus and we focus on that and exclude the rest of who Jesus is. There are many reasons for that. Some of those are cultural. Some of those are, are uh, just because that's all we know. That's all we've seen is this narrow slice of Jesus. And so I want to challenge us today to look beyond cultural norms or our preferences to not make Jesus in our image, but rather allow the Spirit of God to work in such a way that he transforms us into his image. So the first thing I'd like to do is look at some things, or rather some ways, that people see Jesus often in our own culture. This isn't to um, single you out, so if you look at this list that I'm about to give and you go, ooh, that's how I see Jesus, it's not meant to embarrass you, but rather it is meant to identify whoa, this is a sliver, and that sliver may or may not be true, and that sliver is not the whole of who Jesus is. So let's look at some 
uh, common ways that people see Jesus. Some think Jesus is made in our image. In other words, like, uh, like I shared with Cal from the movie, uh, I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. That's creating Jesus in our image. Some think Jesus was promoted to a God status. In other words, he, he was just a man like anybody else, but he was really good, and somehow there's this mysterious thing that occurred, and he has this God-like status. Some think Jesus doesn't say anything negative. Some, say, some think that Jesus just wants a better version of ourselves. Some think Jesus loved and accepted the world the way that it is. Some think Jesus doesn't correct sin. Some think Jesus has suggestions for better living. Oh, maybe you might want to try this. Some think Jesus doesn't offend. Some think Jesus only preaches love. Some think Jesus is a genie who serves our wants and desires, not God's will. Some think Jesus values experience and emotion over God's word and truth. Some think Jesus suffered on the cross so that my life should be easier. And some think Jesus only helps those who help themselves. A narrow vision of who Jesus is is not a helpful vision. And it's not all that God has for us. We need to look at the scriptures to better identify who this Jesus is because it matters. If I think that Jesus is merely a reflection of who I am and the things that I like, what will that mean in the application of him in my life? Well, it, it means that I'm never, I'm, I'm never really going to be transformed into the image of God, but I'm going to try to transform God into my image. Or is it that uh, we see Jesus as the fullness of God in the flesh and all that, he, all that he is and the Holy Spirit that he gives us is transformational in our lives. The way that we see Jesus matters. And so we need to look at scriptures and say, okay, well, what does the scripture has to say, have to say about Jesus? Colossians 2, 8, and 9 is a good place uh, to get a view of that. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What are we saying? We're saying that God came in the flesh, and he came in the flesh in the form of Jesus the Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so we look at the New Testament in particular, especially the Gospels, and we see this physical Jesus, this uh, historical person of Jesus living life out. And we see the narrative that takes shape and how Jesus interacts with people and the words that he spoke that are recorded. And those are absolutely true. Also, Scripture is, uh, uh, there is a lot that occurs within the Scriptures before Jesus. And those things that occurred before Jesus were in part to point us to Jesus. There is something called types. So in the Old Testament, we see types of Christ. It's referred to in theological study as typology. And we see different types of Christ in the Old Testament throughout. Bible.org says it this way. <clears throat> Not only does the Old Testament reveal the coming Messiah through prophecy, in other words, foreknowledge of what will happen, it also reveals him through typology. Typology refers to historical people, places, objects, or events 
which foreshadow Christ and his work in the Old Testament. So literal historical events that occurred that help us to see ways that Christ worked. It's important for us to recognize that that is a way that we look at the Old Testament. That there are types of Christ that are evident within the scriptures that point us to who Jesus is. The New Testament, especially in the Gospels, we see how Jesus lived life out. But in the Old Testament, we're able to see ways that Christ functions and ways that point us to this Jesus so that we can better know him more fully and not just narrow slivers of who we think he might be. There are additional scriptures that would point us and help us to identify types. So consider this in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of these things that are identified in the Old Testament are shadows. They're pictures of, they help us to understand who the Christ is. But ultimately, the substance of that shadow is Jesus. And we see this through types in the Old Testament. Hebrews 10.1 also speaks to this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the law is a shadow or a type of the Christ. But that law is still insufficient. It's not complete. It's incomplete. Bible.org goes on to say it this way, that many, many of the laws, festivals, and stories in the Old Testament were simply shadows of the coming Messiah, meant to prepare Israel for him. As with shadows today, they reflect aspects of something real, but do not fully give the picture. We are saying that in the Old Testament, it's, it is a historical event. It's more than an allegory. At the same time, those historical events show us Christ in a way that we might miss otherwise. And especially from our cultural lens, we want to look at something in and of itself, isolated, as if that is the only historical event that's taking place. But God, in his wisdom, love, and care for people, has woven a narrative that is connecting all of these stories, and the way that he connects them is in the Christ. The Old Testament conceals what the New Testament reveals, and the New Testament reveals Jesus. And it's important for us to identify that as we look at the passages uh, in the Old Testament. Why do I bring this up today? Well, because we're going to be in Exodus. And as we look at Exodus, it's important for us to recognize that there is a bigger message here. And if we're not careful, we would be... Uh, uh, we would be tempted to isolate the stories, to look at the figures, uh, given the characters in Exodus, men, and maybe even be like them. Maybe we would preach sermons that would say five ways of being like Moses. But the problem with that is we were never called to be like Moses. We've been called to be like Christ. So how is Christ manifest in the life of Moses, and what does that mean for us today? Uh, as we look at the scriptures. So, as I'm 
as I'm sharing this information, and especially about types, you may be going, okay, well, Kenny, are, are you making some connections that don't really exist? You know, is this a creative way of looking at the scriptures? And that actually is a very fair question. In fact, that should be a challenge that we all give when we hear people speak of the scriptures. Are you making something up? Is that really exist? Well, we, we actually have that Jesus makes these kind of connections specifically with Moses. In John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to some religious leaders. And he says this to the religious leaders of his day. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is identifying the scriptures bear witness about who he is. They tell of who he is. The implication, as we're going to see, is not just prophetically, but also in types. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now, that, that's an interesting point because the religious leaders are constantly going back to Moses and his writings. In fact, if there is a point that they all agree on, it's that Moses has writings from God that they should study. And so they're looking at Moses, and what Jesus says is that Moses is the one who actually condemns, and he's going to explain why. You would, be, uh, for if you, sorry, I got ahead of myself, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. In other words, the writings that Moses contained, the first five books of the Bible, are about Jesus. Verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Why are we going to Exodus to learn about Jesus? Because Jesus lets us know that Exodus and really the, the entirety of Scripture contains stories of him. One of the ways that we see that story is through types. It's important for us to recognize some of the types. There are some big ones that exist throughout Exodus. I'm going to identify some of the ones that are just available to us in the first 18 chapters, which is what we'll be going over in, uh, over the course of the next few weeks. Uh, so let's take a look at those. First of all, the types uh, of Christ in Exodus, the deliverer of the enslaved. We see that Moses plays this role of delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and taking them into the promised land. We're going to see that as a reflection of who Jesus is. In other words, Jesus is going to perfectly fulfill what Moses couldn't do. Continuing on, <clears throat> another uh, type of Christ is the voice in the burning bush, the Passover lamb of God, the unleavened bread, all types of Christ. Also, the rock that's mentioned in chapter 17, the pillar of cloud and fire leading them in chapter 13, the Red Sea crossing, the manna from heaven, the source of living water, all of these things are types of Christ, uh, major types of Christ in the book of Exodus in the first 18 chapters. It's important for us to identify. So as we're beginning to study this passage, as we look at chapter 1 and 2 today, 
we're looking for Jesus. We're, we're looking to see how Jesus perfectly fulfills what Moses could only partially accomplish. So uh, let's, let's begin by outlining chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'll flesh it out, but I would encourage you throughout the week this week, go back to Exodus chapter 1 and 2 and read it. Listen to it on one of your Bible apps, but take some time to listen to chapter 1 and chapter 2 or to read chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus as we outline it today. Here, in chapter 1, Israel increases greatly in Egypt. One of the things that is very clear from the very beginning of Exodus chapter 1 is that there is a connection to uh, Genesis, that there is a, a continuity that, uh, continuity that connects these two books, Genesis and Exodus. It begins with the 70 persons uh, of Joseph, of Israel, and how they have grown in Egypt. In fact, they've grown in stature, they've, grown, they've increased greatly, they've multiplied, and they've become exceedingly strong. And there is an allusion to the fact that they, have, they are fulfilling Genesis from the very beginning of being fruitful and multiply. That's, that's what the children of Israel are doing in Egypt. They, they are being fruitful and they are multiplying, they are fulfilling God's word, and they're doing it in Egypt. But then Pharaoh oppresses Israel. Pharaoh recognizes that there are a lot of people. And in fact, there are so many uh, Hebrews in, in Egypt rather that uh, he's concerned that they might join one of the enemies and take over from within. So he comes up with a plan. And here is Pharaoh's plan. He goes to the midwives and he says to the midwives, Midwives, when you are with a Hebrew woman... And a child is being born, and it is a boy, kill it. If it is a girl, let her live. And in that way, he intended to decrease the population of Israel and maybe exterminate an entire nation within his nation. However, the midwives are godly. They love the Lord beyond the commands of Pharaoh. And they say, this is not a right thing to do. And so, in faith, they choose to not kill anybody. They're going to let these babies live. And it begins to happen that these babies are, uh, uh, are being born in Egypt. And there's a lot of frustration by Pharaoh to the point that Pharaoh brings the midwives back in for another conversation. And he says, wait, what, why are you doing this? And I, I love the midwives' response in verse 19. The, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. You know, they're not sissies. Like, like they're tough, unlike you Egyptian women. Like, that's, that's the connotation. Pharaoh takes that, but then he gives another command. And his command then is for all people. And to all people in Egypt, he says this, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he's extended this now from the midwives to the people of Egypt to exterminate this people that live in Egypt and to do it by throwing the sons into the Nile. Well, you can, you can imagine uh, the fear that has come over the people. The concerns. I mean, just take a moment and consider what this would mean if you were a Hebrew in Egypt in those days. 
And so we go to chapter 2. And in chapter 2 is the birth of Moses. A Levite takes a Levite woman as his wife, and we find out later that he has had at least two other children uh, with her at, at this time. But during this specific time, when Pharaoh has instituted this law of killing the, uh, the sons, there is a child who is born. And this child who is born is taken care of for three months and hid away. But she can't hide him anymore. And so she puts him in a basket, takes care of that basket that it would float, protect the baby. And uh, Moses' older sister follows this basket down the Nile. It could be that this is purposefully sent to, uh, uh, to Pharaoh's daughter. Could be. It's unclear in the scriptures what is, what is the intention here. But we do know that uh, Moses' sister, older sister, is watching what is happening unfold. And the basket with this baby boy goes to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter has pity on this baby boy. And Miriam, the older sister of Moses, speaks up. You need somebody to nurse that baby? Yeah, actually I do. Oh, I know just the person. And so Miriam takes uh, or rather gets her mom to come and nurse Moses uh, until he's able to go to the house of Pharaoh. And in the house of Pharaoh, he grows up. And as he grows up in the house of Pharaoh, presumably, he is starting to realize that he is a Hebrew. He's a little different than the Egyptians and perhaps has a savior complex. We don't know that for sure. There is somewhat of an implication, but if uh, uh, but I am reading into the text. It is not clear that that is the case, except that one day Moses goes out and he sees the Hebrews being oppressed. And he sees the oppressor and he kills him. He looks this way and that, the scripture says, and he kills him and takes care of the body. The next day he comes out to uh, the Hebrews and he sees two Hebrew men in an argument fighting. He breaks it up and the Hebrews say, who appointed you prince and judge over us? Will you kill us as you did the Egyptian? And Moses realizes that his secret is out. He is a wanted man and he takes off from there to go to Midian and we find out shortly after that passage that Pharaoh is also after Moses. Moses goes to Midian. As he's going to Midian, there are seven daughters of the priest of Midian who are out and they go to a well. Uh, they are being chased away from this well. They can't water their flocks uh, because the shepherds that are present won't allow them to do so. Moses shows up. He chases the shepherds away. He gives provision for the daughters of the priests to be able to water their flocks. And the daughters return home. When the daughters return home, they tell their dad what had happened. Their dad invites Moses back. And inviting Moses back... Hmm, he ends up marrying one of his daughters, Zipporah by name. They have one child that's identified in chapter 2. Later on, we know that there are at least two boys. Uh, but one, one son is born in uh, Exodus chapter 2. And then we see this. God hears Israel's groaning. Uh, let me read verses uh, 23 and following to you. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery 
came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And we want to be careful with that, because we, we could wrongly imply some things. So, first thing we might imply is that uh, somehow God wasn't aware that they were slaves in Egypt and that they were struggling. That is not what this passage implies. It could be that God is absent-minded as we read that passage. That is not what this passage implies, but rather this is a euphemism to say, uh, now is the time for me to fulfill that which I've set in motion. And God does just that. This is Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and I want to tell you that they clearly point to Jesus, that Moses is a type. The deliverer is a type of the ultimate deliverer, Christ. And let's take a look at, uh, at how that plays out. If you have your phones, I would encourage you to take some pictures of this uh, because there are some uh, uh, references here that you may want to go back and read later. That's great. Also, if you have our app, you can go to our app. You can go to notes. At, once you click on notes, you can find the sermon series. You can click on today's sermon, and these slides will be available to you that you can interact with. So different ways that you can connect with, uh, with this resource. So we see in Moses, an evil king, Pharaoh, tried to kill him as a baby. Interestingly, that's exactly what happens with Jesus. King Herod tries to kill baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Moses was hidden from the evil king. In Matthew chapter 2, an angel uh, says to hide the child from the evil king Herod. Moses was sent into Egypt to preserve his life. Similarly, Jesus was taken into Egypt to preserve his life. Moses was saved by women, his mother, Miriam, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. Jesus was saved and helped by his mother, Mary. Now, that, that's an important piece, and we don't want to overlook it, because uh, in those days, it would have been common to uh, overlook the contribution of women. And it's interesting and important for us to see that God doesn't. He doesn't overlook that contribution. In fact, these women have a significant hand in the salvation of Israel by protecting the deliverer. Mary has a unique role in protecting Jesus, the deliverer of humankind. Uh, what does that mean? That means that no one is outside of the scope of God using and working with for his glory and the deliverance of people. Continuing on. Moses became a prince of Egypt. Jesus is the prince of peace. Moses had a long period of silence from childhood to adulthood, similarly with Jesus. Moses had a secret identity. Jesus also, it has to be revealed by the Spirit that he is the Son of God. Moses tries to save a Hebrew kinsman. Jesus came to save his Hebrew kinsman first and the world to follow. Moses went from being a prince to a pauper. Jesus goes from being God to being a man. Moses saved a woman at a well. Jesus saved a woman at a well also in John chapter 4. We see many similarities, these types of Christ being revealed. There is a slender view that we often take, and we need to broaden it to the fullness of who God is. And broadening it to the fullness of who God is and receiving who Jesus is, 
there is a transformation that occurs in our lives. We're not making God in our image, but rather God is in the business of making us into his image. There are types throughout the Old Testament that point us to who Jesus is. This is an example of that thing specifically, uh, of that reality. So if that's true, let's talk about some takeaways. If Exodus points us to Jesus, then what do we learn about Jesus through these chapters? Well, first of all, that God provides. Specifically, God provides a deliverer. Jesus is that provision of the Father that we would be delivered. Now, I, I, I want to say that, again, specifically, Moses is delivering a group of people who have been slaves in Egypt, and he is delivering those who are slaves in Egypt to the promised land. Now, they, there are some other roles. They have to uh, work in tandem with Moses. There's a lot we could go into detail there. We're, we're not going to do that today. Uh, but Moses represents a very, a very thin line, whereas Jesus uh, more fully fulfills this deliverer piece in that he also addresses those who are um, slaves to sin and death. So there is a spiritual element, right, that he saves us from sin and death. There is also, so that's salvation, there's also this demonization that occurs that Jesus uh, delivers us from the demonic. Jesus does that. That's part of his work. Jesus uh, is more fully the deliverer. And two, that God hears our cry. God hears our cry. He doesn't turn a deaf ear. He is very aware of it, and uh, he responds to it. And one of the ways that he responds to it is in the provision of his son, Jesus who is active, we see in the New Testament, how he goes to the cross, how he's willing to give his life that I might have life, that he takes my sin, our sins, up on the cross, that all who call on his name are saved, who go from slavery into freedom, into eternal life. That's the work of Jesus, and we see that played out in the New Testament, and it's available to all, not just a group of people, a, a nationality, but to all people. We see this lived out uh, or, or communicated through the scriptures. Also, we have a response. And, and we need to talk through that response a little bit. So as we see Jesus at work being revealed in the life of types like Moses, we, we have a response to that. Well, first of all, remain faithful to God. That, that's a great phrase, to remain faithful. I, I like this word instead, obedient to be obedient to God. In other words, uh, God's word says something, and we in obedience, and born out of love and a desire to follow Jesus out of slavery into the promised land, we want to obey him. Anybody who was caught in rebellion uh, throughout the time of the wilderness wanderings, there were consequences, and those consequences often ended in death. We don't want that. We want life. So we're obedient to God and following him and obeying him. Also, cry out to God to deliver us. Recognizing that that deliverance could be initial salvation, that, that uh, Lord Jesus, I'm following you. I have tried it on my own, and I need you. Please forgive me for, uh, for, uh, for sinning against you. Please forgive me for trying it on my own. You are my Savior Lord, I trust you as my Savior. It could be that first time salvation piece. But it could also be 
just in the day-to-day living out of, God, we need you. Save me today. I am tempted in my own flesh to do my own thing that may harm other people. Lord, deliver me. And he does. And he gives opportunity. And sometimes that's spiritual. Lord, I'm struggling with this uh, demonization that is occurring, whether that is uh, demonic, um, what would I say, depression, demonic oppression, or demonic possession. There could be this, this uh, grand spectrum that, that demonization is occurring on, and God delivers us, and he does that in a spiritual way. And then seek the deliverer, Jesus. Sometimes we seek the things and the stuff, right? Like our, our prayers often are for an outcome, things. Lord, would you make life easier? Would you make life better? Would you help me to have this job? Would you help me to have this stuff? Would you help me to have these things? That's not necessarily bad, except for when, it's, when we're seeking that exclusively and not Jesus himself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things are added. We, we seek Jesus first. So what does that mean? Well, that could also be that we're praying for deliverance for a spouse, for children, for other family members, for a neighbor, for friends, that we're seeking God to deliver. Those are ways that we can respond uh, to this type of Jesus. In very, in very concrete ways. The worship team's going to come out, and as they come out and we prepare our hearts for communion, uh, I want to encourage us to take this idea of types even to the communion table. That this bread represents the body of Jesus who was broken for us. This cup represents the blood that Jesus spilled on our behalf. That this is a new covenant that doesn't just cover sin, but takes sin away. We see Jesus at work, even in communion, and we learn things about it. And one thing that we may have learned today is that we have taken a slice of who Jesus is and focused on that exclusively, not recognizing the fullness of who Jesus is and the transformation that he wants to take place in our lives. And if that is the case, that is worthy of repentance. That's called sin. And sin needs to be repented of. And one of the things that we do in communion is give space and time for repentance. And so it may be, Lord, I have only focused on this aspect of you. I really like that you're love and I haven't focused that you want me to repent. I haven't identified that, that maybe uh, I'm a mess and you're wanting to change me. You're wanting to transform me in this place. And so forgive me, Lord. And repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. And we do that verbally. We confess it with our mouth. And as we confess it, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. At Friendship, one of the ways that we practice communion is by coming forward in the carpeted areas and going to the station nearest us, getting both the bread and the cup, and then returning to your seat on the outer edge. And uh, today we'll... Uh, sing a worship song together, and at the end of that song, uh, we'll participate. With that in mind, would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. You knew that we needed prophecies that would identify, that would tell us when you were coming, where you were coming, how you were coming into this world. 
you also knew we needed types, pictures of who you are, shadows. Though imperfect, you perfectly fulfill those shadows, those types, and we're thankful. So even today as we approach the table, as we participate with both the bread and the cup, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, to be obedient to you, to cry out to you, to seek the deliverer, Jesus, and not just the things and not just the stuff. That you would be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.